I'm Henry from Fortress on a Hill. We're a leftist veteran podcast that aims to expose the reality of the U.S. military's many wars abroad, the horror that it puts on the people that live in those places, and the damage that military service does to Americans. Congress has abdicated its role, giving oversight to the military. Fortress on a Hill aims to change that. Fortressonahill.com or wherever you get your podcast. Now, back to Lions Led by Donkeys. What you heard right behind you was the sound of Bofors guns directly targeting the top of Tiger Hills, the prelude to the final assault. Also going on simultaneously are multi-barreled rocket launchers also attacking the same positions on Tiger Hills. Fireballs and smoke fill the air. The sound of the Bofors guns does not stop for the next 13 hours. But right now the guns are providing covering fire to the men making their way up to the top. Nearly 3,000 men from three different regiments are getting ready to put their lives on line. Men from the two Naga and eight Sikh regiments take position on the right and left flanks of Tiger Hill. The 18 Grenadiers hide at the rear where Pakistan does not expect anyone to be. Later this will prove to be a decisive move. Hello and welcome to yet another episode of The Lions Led by Donkeys. With me today, as seemingly always recently, is Travis. Howdy. Um, yeah, and uh, so you came, I I want to say this is your idea. Yeah, you slid in my DMs <laughs> like, hey, uh, Indian Pakistan are about to go to fucking war again. We should cover one of their wars. And uh, we picked <laughs> the, the dumbest one we could find, which was the Cargo War. And uh, as of most of their little conflagrations of, 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 of their never-ending war over Kashmir, there seemed to be already over by the time we got to record this um yeah i'm actually like obviously on one hand like it's really good that they didn't like nuke each other to death or right. launch some sort of ridiculous <laughs> large-scale war but on the other hand like damn we're, we're almost like a week out like by the time this episode ever got released like assuming it gets released on next monday like this is it's already been out of the news for like two or three days by the time we're recording and we like decided to record it like immediately <laughs> yeah like we were like we have to record this as soon as we can and which is normally not the case because uh thing about a history podcast not time sensitive uh <laughs> yeah. um, um but it is nice to get out you know when it is relevant but i think we've we've already uh that ship already sailed i yeah. guess thank god honestly thank god but yeah we get scooped on, by trevor man. noah <laughs> <laughs> uh, oh, shit. yeah that was fucking awful um <laughs> So, uh, going into the Cargill War, we uh, we have to point out that we're not going to try to relitigate the status of Kashmir. Uh, that would be a series unto itself, and that's not something we're going to try to tackle. Uh, one, because I definitely do not know enough about it to make an educated argument. Uh, and, and two, both Pakistan and India can fuck off with that bullshit, because Kashmir clearly belongs to the glorious crater, Kurdistan. Uh, <laughs> the greater Kurdistan stretches from Albania to Japan. Bishi, bishi, yasarakapo. And we figured um, as there's probably a couple listeners who are, you know, this is the the thing that they studied, which is cool. Uh, good for you, man. Yeah. Um, but most people aren't like that. Uh, so Travis is going to give us a explain like I'm five quick rundown of how the fuck Kashmir ended up how it is right now. Um, the five minute history of, uh, of Indian Pakistan and, and Kashmir is, uh, well, it's hard to really do accurately, uh, which is good because I'm, this isn't my area of expertise. So I'll give the, uh, I can give the for dummies version and that's about it because I'm a dummy when it comes to this. Um, but, uh, so it, I guess the, the, the best place to start would probably be when the British show up because they, they seem to kind of be behind everything these days. Um, especially in that like region. Yemen. <laughs> yeah yemen the why arabs lose wars article and now <laughs> india and pakistan uh so yeah so the british showed up in the uh the early 17th century well i guess specifically the british east india company 
um, showed up in the early 17th century along the coasts of uh, of India and where they established just like small trading posts um, with the permission of the local the local powers, particularly the uh, the Mughal Empire, um, which was a very uh, large, powerful um, empire in the Indian subcontinent at the time. Um, and then over the next two centuries, the East India Company grew stronger and stronger, eventually controlling territory in India. And uh, by like the mid 19th century, they controlled pretty much the entire Indian subcontinent um, from like what is now Pakistan through what is now Bangladesh. And um, then in 1857, there is a, a Sepoy Rebellion, which is probably worth an episode. If, oh, if there yeah, isn't absolutely. One um, and then, which that resulted in the, I guess, long story short, the British Empire took over from the East India Company after the Sepoy Rebellion. And uh, by the end of the 19th century, uh, or around like World War One or so, um, British India stretched all the way from what is now Pakistan to what is now Myanmar and also included, uh, well, actually, I don't know if technically British India included Nepal and Sri Lanka, but like the British also controlled those areas. And they also controlled, to some extent, Afghanistan, um, kind of from the same power node in British India. And uh, it should also be noted that um, both the East India Company and the British were pretty pretty brutal rulers. Um, so whenever one of those... That there's that there's this one British historian who loves to talk about how uh, how great the British were for India because like oh they boy. built trains or something. Um, <laughs> I forget his name, but he's he's really he's like a really big deal. Um, and I think uh, there's been some podcast or something that talked about how shitty he was. Sounds uh, like a future way, reading um, series episode. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that'd probably be fun. But yeah, so the the British, but the East India Company. And the British Empire, basically, their agricultural policies and so on ended up causing like multiple famines across like the three centuries that they controlled India, leading to the deaths of tens of millions through starvation and disease. And the, and, the, uh, the most famous, the Great Bengal Famine during yeah. World War Two is effectively the Indian Holodomor. Like it's basically, yeah, it can it be was, argued that it was a genocide. It, yeah, deliberate, de- like at, at the feet of Winston Churchill and the British Empire. Um, and, uh, so yeah, so they, it was pretty bad. And they also, the British had a, their kind of MO across their entire empire was playing various ethnic and religious groups off of each other and basically putting a wedge between these groups to cause sectarian tensions that they could, you know, play divide and conquer. Um, so that people are too busy hating each other to hate the, the British empire. And, um, as a result of, you know, the increasingly brutal, uh, British rule throughout the late 19th and early 20th century, the Indian independence movement gained more and more power and influence. And uh, the catastrophic losses incurred by the British in World War II um, basically kind of forced the British to start reevaluating their empire. And um, in 1947, August of 1947, the uh, British India was officially dissolved into the new states of India and Pakistan. And uh, Pakistan included uh, also what at the time was called East Pakistan, but what is today Bangladesh. And uh, India included, well, I think every, everything that is now India. But there are also these, um, these princely states, uh, which were, as part of the partition plan, were basically left to their own, like left to decide which, uh, which side that they would join. And... Um, the specifics of partition are like way beyond my knowledge, so like the specific legal aspects and events and so on. But the basic idea is they wanted Pakistan to be for the large Muslim population of British India and India for the large Hindu population. And of course, they drew borders and uh, these borders weren't exactly perfect, which left tens of millions of Muslims living in Indian territory and tens of millions of Hindus living in Pakistani ter- territory. And uh, when partition occurred and the two states were separated, um, there was a really awful and extremely violent population displacement in both directions, which led to probably two or three million deaths. And uh, it was just really, really horrible. And the kind of the the intense violence in which both states were born um, is probably a large part of why the, there's so much bad blood between the two. 
um, yeah. all the way through to the present. And uh, so India and Pakistan, they would kind of they would be at each other's throats pretty much from day one. And um, so I mentioned earlier the that princely these princely states um, were kind of left to decide which side to join. And one of those was uh, the princely state of Kashmir and Jammu, which is in the uh, kind of the, the the mountainous Himalaya region on the northern north western part of India and northeastern part of Pakistan and also borders China to some extent. And um, this was one of those princely states which was left to decide on its own. And it didn't decide immediately. Um, and Pakistan worried that they would join India. So in August or October of 1947, just two months after independence, um, Pakistan invaded uh, Kashmir and Jammu. And Kashmir decided that in order to get Indian protection against Pakistan, they would uh, concede and join India. And uh, the details of that are really complicated, but the basic idea is Kashmir sort of joined India and India sent forces to defend it. And they fought a war in 1947 and early 1948. And in, I think, April of 1948, they agreed to a ceasefire um, along what they called the line of control, which divided Kashmir into basically two sections, the Pakistani section, which was about a third of the territory, and the Indian section, which was about two-thirds of the territory. And this line of control would be the kind of de facto border between the two states in um, in Kashmir, I think through till the present. Um, or yeah, it's, more or it's less still kind of there unchanged. I think it changed a little bit, but not a whole lot. Yeah, the basic principle is this semi-official division between the two in which India gets about two-thirds and Pakistan about a third. And uh, things were relatively quiet, at least uh, by India-Pakistan standards, until 1965 when um, Pakistan started infiltrating forces into Kashmir in order to foment an insurgency against uh, Indian occupation. And uh, so India was a little bit mad about this, and so they launched a full-scale invasion of Pakistan um, and the ensuing war was probably, I guess, arguably the largest conventional war since World War II. Um, and this involved like massive armor battles and massive air battles, um, which and, and caused like huge amounts of casualties. And uh, by the end of the war, India was generally ahead and a ceasefire was signed. I think the war only lasted, I think, less than three weeks, like. I want to say 17 days was what I read, but either way, it was really brief, but India won. That seems to be and the case really, in all of them. <laughs> yeah, basically. Um, and then, so in East Pakistan, um, Bangladeshi independence groups were forming and gaining power. And I think that actually the biggest Bangladeshi independence group was actually a Maoist group. Um, so going back to uh, our Far Cry 4 episode. Yeah. Yeah. Um, <laughs> and in 1971, Bangladesh declared independence from Pakistan. And uh, in response, Pakistan launched what they called Operation Searchlight. And basically, this was the systematic mass murder of Bangladeshis. And uh, I don't rem remember the exact figures, but I think estimates range from 100,000 to like 2 million people were killed yeah. in a very short amount of time by Pakistani forces. And, and, there, and they uh, had a lot of... Um bangladeshi uh facilitators as well uh like yeah. i don't want to give them any derogatory nicknames but uh like there was definitely some who still want to be part of east pakistan and very recently uh bangladesh was still prosecuting people who were involved in it oh wow i okay. think it was only a couple yeah, years ago mm -hmm. yeah it wouldn't surprise me but uh either way india i think this was when um, Indira Gandhi was uh, prime minister at the time. Uh, she, or India, under her rule, intervened in Bangladesh. And um, a kind of interesting side note, at this, um, Richard Nixon was so angry that India intervened in Bangladesh um, that Henry Kissinger and Nixon decided to send a full carrier battle group um, to the coast of India to basically threaten war with India if they didn't stop, <laughs> if they or if if they like stopped fighting 
um, in Bangladesh. Like basically we would go to war with India if they continued stopping the genocide. And basically this was because we sold a lot of weapons to Pakistan and India bought like MiG-21s from the USSR. And we were just really mad that they bought weapons from the USSR that we literally threatened war with India because they were stopping a genocide. So another like check mark on like why Kissinger fucking sucks. Uh, I think um, Kissinger could never just sleep on a genocide. You're like, oh, got to get involved somehow. And, <laughs> yeah, exactly. and it's not going to be to stop it. <laughs> yeah. And uh, so actually, and so Pakistan then also invaded India or attacked India in positions in the West um, in order to try and take the pressure off Bangladesh. But before the American carrier battle group could arrive, India had already won the war, um, liberating Bangladesh. Or liberating is perhaps too loaded a word, but um, allowing for the independence of Bangladesh from Pakistan. And uh, the 1971 war is kind of interesting because this was basically the um, Indian MiG-21s versus Pakistani F-86s and the MiG-21s just like wiped the floor with the Pakistani F-86s. So that's maybe another reason the the U.S. wanted to invade India was because the Soviet planes were making ours look bad. That will be a uh, uh, another feature in the Cargill War as well. Uh. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> um, okay, so over the next, so India would have for, successfully test their first nuclear weapon in 1974 and they rapidly began uh, developing and expanding their nuclear arsenal afterwards and so that resulted in that plus like the massive casualties that the Pakistani military incurred in 1971 was probably what led to the gradual slowdown of like outright conventional warfare um, there are obviously still conflicts throughout the the especially in the 80s on the Siachen glacier and uh, and actually, like an interesting note, they, they both forces maintain permanent outposts on the Siachen Glacier, which is at over twenty thousand feet high, which makes it the highest battleground in the world. And uh, I actually saw a picture a while back of a Pakistani T fifty five tank. Well, okay, technically a Chinese Type sixty nine two tank, but it's a ripoff the Type T fifty five stationed on the Siachen Glacier at like twenty thousand feet up and i'm just thinking like you know try putting an m1 abrams at twenty thousand feet try know, putting anything at 20 you know it's, it's interesting <laughs> the siachen glacier is also partially controlled by china now uh yeah, yeah. so and well india and china also fought a war that not many people know about yeah but, um, in 63 yeah also how fucking nuts does like a commander be like this is a good place for armor when they're looking at a glacier <laughs> that is taller than most mountains like yeah fuck it put armor up there Oh, it's sick. The T-55 can conquer even the highest mountain. Yeah. I'm just waiting um, for one to summit Everest. You know, we, we have the, the <laughs> first ampute. We have, we've had the first amputees. We've had yeah. people without bottled oxygen. We have like kids, old people. Uh, it's Next time for the T-55. Battle tanks. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> it's time for the T-55 to make its uh, debut ascent. It just like crushes the summit of the mountain, causing <laughs> it to get like 20 or 30 feet shorter. <laughs> But, uh, yeah, so the uh, it also it should be noted that um, although Pakistan is arguably arguably the aggressor in most of the wars that I I just talked about, um, Indian rule of Kashmir is certainly not particularly pretty. Um, the legality aside of like where of who Kashmir belongs to, like that's not what we're get, trying to do. But Comrade the region Apo. is. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Kurdistan. Um, the capital of Kashmir is Erbil. Uh, <laughs> but the the region uh, is mostly Muslim, and India has a pretty bad history when it comes to its treatment of uh, the Indian Muslim population. I think India is the second largest Muslim country in the world. I think it has nearly 200 million Muslims behind. And Indonesia is the first, um, yeah. but nonetheless, like India has a really, really bad history of how it treats uh, its Muslim population. And Indian forces in Kashmir are they're an occupation force, um, arguably, and uh, and with that comes routine human rights abuses such as like mass rape, torture, murder, and so on. People and just all get disappeared crimes. off the street. Um, yeah, exactly. One of their their main so like uh, the the JEM, which is the militant organization, hadn't quite existed yet during the time period we're talking about. But they're the ones who 
attack the Indian police convoy who killed, I think, 47 people, which is what started the newest uh, war conflict, uh, pissing contest, whatever you want to call it. Um, <laughs> uh, like the, the Indian police in in Kashmir have a tendency to disperse riots and stuff. Cause the riots are much more common than outright militant attacks right now. Uh, and they disperse them with uh, birdshot from shotguns and they aim for the face uh, with, and, and like BB guns and they aim for eyes yeah. and things like that. Um, gnarly. Yeah. That, that's fucking awful. That makes American police look good, which yeah. is hard <laughs> to do. Yeah, yeah exactly. Um, and I'm sure like, you know, this isn't an argument that Pakistani control would be better, but it is an argument that obviously the Asayish and Peshmerga should be sent as peacekeeping forces <laughs> to uh, reclaim the, the region for its true owners. But um, Yeah, they'll be yeah, disarmed so and they'll let ISIS in. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, because there's like six Christians in Kashmir. When ISIS invades, they'll just completely withdraw um, the Peshmerga forces and let ISIS murder all the Christians like they did uh they totally didn't do any rock. Um, but, uh, but yeah, so the, the 1990s saw Pakistan increasing its support for separatist movements in Indian-controlled Kashmir. And then in 1998, Pakistan tested successfully its first nuclear weapon. And uh, I believe that's where Joe comes in. All right. So, uh, like... Travis said, uh, I- India is not innocent in um, in the things that we were going to talk about, but uh, because of the nature of the conflict, almost all firsthand accounts and sources are Indian. So, take that for what's worth. Um, I did find a book, which I quote from extensively, uh, that was written by a Pakistani general who helped plan the mission, or at least was in the room, uh, knew a guy who knew a guy type situation. Um, but it is not often in modern conflict where we can say, uh, this is this is absolutely somebody's fault, uh, but this war is absolutely Pakistan's fault, and we can, <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> and we can say that with full certainty. Um, but not entirely, because as you'll find out, it's not that easy when it comes to Pakistan or the military. Um, yeah. It is the fault of the ISI, uh, or which is Pakistan's version of the CIA for people who don't know. Uh, the ISI is pretty fucking notorious for doing shit completely on their own with no input from the government. Uh, it's one of the reasons why it's actually not that hard to believe that the Pakistani government had no fucking idea Osama bin Laden was in Pakistan. Uh, <laughs> yeah. Because the ISI is just that powerful. Um, so, in the winter of 1998, uh, people, will say, started crossing the line of control uh, that separated India from Pakistani Kashmir uh, into Indian uh, in- into Indian controlled Kashmir, and they started taking strategic points. Um, so, Pakistan said that they were freedom fighters. Um, and so there's also, uh, sources at first that said they're Kashmiri militants trained by the ISI or even Afghan mercenaries who for some how or another took a break from the ongoing Afghan civil war going on next door to just jump on over <laughs> and do more civil war. So, uh, but the fact remains is they were absolutely 100% Pakistani regular soldiers, uh, they actually didn't even do that good of a job covering their tracks, which we'll talk about in a little bit. Uh, the Pakistani soldiers uh, stormed over the border in what became known as Operation Badr, and their goal was to take high points, choke points, uh, points that would be very, very defensible. They weren't just going to like sweep the Indian army out of Kashmir. That wasn't their goal. Um, but... What you do have to ask is why the fuck do they want to trigger a conflict? Because, I mean, you're not just going to be able to storm across the LOC and take things. That's like saying North Korea is going to be able to storm across the DMZ and take a, a high point just because they want it and, and South Korea isn't going to respond. Um, so every war Pakistan had fought against India to that point had been a crushing defeat. Uh, most of them stopped specifically because India did not want to keep advancing. Um, in this case, they wanted India to withdraw completely from the Saichin Glacier, uh, thus somehow magically forcing India to negotiate on the wider Kashmir conflict and bring the whole thing to a close. It doesn't make a lot of sense, um, <laughs> which uh, I know Travis talked about the Saichin Glacier a little bit already, um, but 
Like most things in Kashmir, it's claimed by both sides, uh, neither of whom accept the other's claim. Uh, so why did they want to control a meaningless fucking glacier that's 20,000 feet in the air? If you're looking for a legitimate answer, there isn't one other than territory. Uh, like when people complain about, uh, oh, we lost a Sichuan glacier, glacier, they just talk about how large of a landmass they lost. It's not worth anything. Like that T-55 on top of a 20,000-foot mountain isn't going to fucking do anything. You can't, <laughs> no. you, you can't just rain main gun rounds down from a fucking mountain. That's not how it works. Um, a glacier is useless. A m- military high ground is like the, the, a 20,000-foot glacier isn't a ridgeline or a hill or something. It's a mountain. <laughs> You're not dragging artillery pieces up there. Um, unless it's T-55, apparently. Uh, but that didn't stop both sides from launching a full eight operations against one another over the fucking thing. Uh, small teams ice-axed their way up sheer cliff faces to try to attack the other side. Um, in the end, there was an Operation Rajiv, which involved Indian soldiers scaling a literal ice fortress and attacking the enemy with bayonets <laughs> and hand grenades 21,000 feet in the air uh, over, really? over nothing. <laughs> in the end, India pretty much controlled most of the glacier. Um, but in order to get India off their glacier, they'd have to get something to bargain with, uh, which brings us to the town of Cargill, another completely pointless Piece of shit. Uh, I don't mean to uh, disparage the fine people of the town of Cargill, but I mean, it was a population of 9,000 and there was nothing there. Uh, the, the only thing that was useful was not the town itself, but rather where it was. Um, so Kashmir and especially this region of Kashmir is incredibly rugged and even the best roads are only about two lanes wide. Um, and since air travel in a place of such high elevation is actually kind of difficult, almost all traffic comes in by road. So, so if the Pakistanis could seize Cargill, they could control uh, part of an Indian national highway that ran through it, effectively blackmailing the Indians to get the fuck off the glacier. If this sounds like a bad idea, it's because it is. And the ISI knew it was. Uh, the ISI had submitted this exact same plan to two different prime ministers in the past. One was Zia al-Haq, someone who is such so bad at their job that they created the fucking Taliban. And the other was Benazir Bhutto, who was, was so bad at their job they kicked that office for corruption. Both of them told the ISI that shit was nuts and not to do it. Their main worry was, you know, India would attack them. Uh, a military operation against them, against India, would draw them into another large-scale war that they had no hope of winning. So that's why this time around, the ISI didn't bother to ask for permission. <laughs> <laughs> In 1999, the Indians found evidence of massive amounts of infiltration, and the Prime Minister of Pakistan got an urgent phone call from the Prime Minister of India, Bihari Vajapi, uh, asking him just what the fuck was he doing. Um, the Pakistani prime minister then ordered an emergency meeting because the prime minister had no idea what he was talking about. In the meeting, the Pakistani prime minister, Nawaz Sharif, was brought uh, equal parts of lies and misdirection to prove that what the Indian prime minister was saying was not entirely true. Uh, <laughs> th- this was presented to him by the ISI and the Pakistani chief of staff, Pervez Musharraf. The chief of staff and the ISI told the Pakistani prime minister that troops had not crossed the line of control and that the Indian forces were simply finding Kashmiri militants, uh, which they were supporting and everybody was totally fine with. Uh, they even brought out a map to show him exactly where the soldiers were. Uh, <laughs> now, How do they know? <laughs> so uh, the thing was, the map was an operational map uh, and like a military type map. Uh, that the ISI uh-huh. was actually using to plan their operation. Uh, it did actually have Pakistani army positions, dozens of miles the LOC clearly marked all over the goddamn place. <laughs> the map, it turned out, was one of the misdirections. The map had no text on it, uh, only symbols, and the, LO- the LOC was not marked. <laughs> the military... The- the military commanders and ISI directors presented in the room gave absolutely no orientation to the map to the prime minister as to what the symbols on the map meant or where the places were. Now, for a prime minister of a country the size of Pakistan, you would expect that they kind of know where the LOC is, but not exactly. And that is what the ISI was hoping, and they were right. Yeah. Uh, so, f- And for reasons that nobody's entirely sure of, the prime minister did not ask. And 
Then there's the lie. The main hitching point to the Indian Prime Minister's phone call was that Pakistani soldiers were over the LOC. So the clearly marked LOC on the map should be important, but there wasn't one. Um, of course. Also, the room is full of military officers of the chief of staff on down to pretty much every divisional commander in the Pakistani army. None of them asked any questions either. Um, so that's when the ISI director explained to the room that the current positions of the Indian Pakistani troops, and he wasn't lying. He was simply misdirecting them. Uh, but he assumed that the minister did not know where the LOC was. Uh, this is a direct quote from the book, uh, quote from Cargill to the coup. Um, during the presentation, when Pakistani and Indian positions were pointed out to the prime minister, he was unable to fully comprehend the locations of these posts. There were no mention of Pakistani troops crossing the LOC, nor of Pakistani troop buildups five to 10 uh, kilometers beyond the LOC. One of the retired generals recalled, I saw scores of positions across the LOC, but I did not say anything. (laughs) (laughs) Jesus. And if you thought the ISI was done lying, you don't know the ISI. Uh, The presentation went on to explain to the Prime Minister that the Mujahideen of Kashmir had seized several points, but all of these were in undemarcated zones of the LOC. By that, of course, he meant that they were technically neither controlled by India or Pakistan. Um, But even then, India was lying because they weren't Pakistani troops. They were Mujahideen. Pakistan only support their operations, which the Prime Minister was totally fine with. That was, of course, a bold-faced lie. Uh, Head of the ISI at the time, Shahid Aziz, said, quote, There were no Mujahideen. Our soldiers were made to occupy barren ridges with handheld weapons and ammunition. Uh, literally the only cover that the soldiers were given that was that they did not wear regular uniforms and that the ISI broadcasted pre-recorded phone calls over unsecured lines, knowing that the Indians would be listening in. Even Aziz himself said that this fooled absolutely nobody. (laughs) (laughs) Even with all this assurance that Pakistani troops would not be involved in direct fighting, even though remember they were all Pakistani troops, the prime minister was worried that India would not take this shit lying down. Don't worry, the ISI had that covered too. They launched in a flattery offensive, saying, quote, Sir, you'll go down in history as the Pakistan uh, the history of Pakistan as the Prime Minister whose tenure Kashmir was resolved. And <laughs> Sir, Pakistan was created with the Muslim League, and they'll always be remembered for creating Pakistan. And now Allah has given you the opportunity and chance to get India held Kashmir, and your name will be written in golden letters. Okay. He even, <laughs> he even went on to appeal to the fact that uh, the prime minister was technically Kashmiri in uh, descent and asking him what his family would think if he did not act. <laughs> <laughs> it's like, I know we didn't tell you that we were invading India, but like now that we've invaded India, it's cool, right? We're all cool. And the the plan that they had for like the, the mental gymnastics that were required for anybody to believe what they believed of how India would respond to this is outstanding. Um, also, they quickly explained that the Indians had already lost the strategic points as the infiltrators had secured them and they were impossible to take back. They thought the Indians would do the exact same thing the Pakistanis did when they lost control of the Saichan Glacier. Keep their fucking mouth shut. Uh, so when that happened, then Prime Minister Zia al Haq did not want to say shit when the Indians took control of the area out of embarrassment. And the Pakistani leadership assumed that the Indians would be just as ashamed and defeat on the, across the LOC. Like there was no news reports that they were, their military was pushed off the glacier or anything like that. They just like, whoop, that sucks. And they didn't say shit to try to save face. Uh, what is very clear here is that the Pakistani military and intelligence community planned this operation totally and completely on their own. But it does not mean that the entire command structure or the entire ISI was involved. It is generally believed that only four people in total knew about the plans in the entirety. That blame is almost always put on Pervez Musharraf and the ISI chief Aziz. Or was it? Okay. Because everything I just said could kind of technically maybe be a lie, depending on who you believe. And the ISI might be kind of hard to uh, trust, and that's understandable, but... So is the prime minister, uh, and so is Pervez Musharraf. Nobody here is cool. Nobody here is like a trustworthy actor. Um, 
But because we're nothing if not a fair and balanced podcast, <laughs> I have to tell Musharraf's side as well. I guess. I don't know. We've never played both sides before, but I guess I'll start for this episode. <laughs> uh, um, Musharraf insists that he told Sharif his plans months before. But it should also be noted that two of them fucking hated each other just as soon as the war is over, which is why Musharraf would eventually uh, take over the government. Uh, but so while um, either the Pakistanis were lying or not lying, depending on who you believe or another, the Indians launched Operation VJ to retake the points seized by Pakistan. While the, Pakistan, the Pakistani government had rolled the dice, hoping that India would just accept that they now control various points of their territory, they could not have been more wrong. India mobilized 200,000 soldiers. The the Indian Air Force also launched its own operation, Safed Shagar. I'm probably pronouncing that terribly. I'm sorry to our Indian audience, um, <laughs> which I'm sure exists. Uh, it quickly turned into something of an educational operation. India had done little to upgrade or replace its aging helicopter and jet fleet since the last major war with Pakistan in 1971. And in some cases, they are still fueling jets they had first flown in the 1950s. This ended uh, a little more than a turkey shoot for uh, the modern anti-aircraft missiles being used by uh, Pakistan. They had a large supply of stingers, and uh, they did. It, they made pretty easy work out of the Indian Air Force, which made them have to fly higher, meaning that their bombing runs were uh, much more inaccurate. Um, also, sometimes the altitude of the battlefield itself was more than enough to bring down a couple of jets and helicopters. So, not not a good not a good area for for an air war. Um, that did not mean, however, that the Indian Air Force could not control the skies, because despite the fact they're flying some airframes around since the advent of jet engines, the Indian Air Force had immediate and total air superiority of their Pakistani counterparts. There was one reason for this. The Indians had missiles that could lock on and destroy enemy jets before uh, or beyond what the human eye could see. These are what is known as beyond visual range missiles. Uh, pretty common these days. I would imagine most air forces have them if they don't. Whoops. Uh, but the Pakistanis did not have this capability. Uh, knowing this, the really? pa- 1999. Yeah, seriously. <laughs> uh, and they were flying American airframes as well. Um, and do they I, have F-16s yet? Yes. Yes, they do. Um, and I think a lot of that has to do with kind of like when we sell the M1 Abrams to other countries, we sell it with different armor. Like we don't sell it with depleted uranium armor. We sell it with steel. So they're easier to kill if, if the time comes. Um, so knowing this, the Pakistani Air Force flat out refused to fly in support of the Pakistani army. which is something i have literally never heard of this is some like roman time shit where one branch in the military refuses to support the others um or like world war ii imperial japan yes yeah when the navy is like nope not helping the army today um (laughs) so they flew combat air patrols over pakistan uh, but they would not go near the loc during the conflict like if india decided to try to like bomb logistics uh complexes or whatever they would have interdicted them but but uh because of they they made this uh this these operational plans knowing that they wouldn't have to do anything because india had a strict rule about not not operating over the loc they simply wanted to secure what they considered indian Kashmir. so the, the pakistani air force stayed out of it completely and in most parts they would stay over 10 miles away from the loc just to stay safe and there was like, there's stories of uh, Indian jets fucking with them, like purposely flying over the LOC and getting as close as one mile away from the nearest jet <laughs> and then just turning around knowing they weren't going to be attacked. <laughs> uh, this meant that while Indian jets and helicopters were bombing the dog shit of Pakistani troops, the Air Force would sit back and refuse to help and instead watch. Um, on the sea, the Pakistanis were equally toothless. The Indian Navy launched Operation Talwar, which immediately strangled Pakistan's sea trade. The port of Karachi was blockaded and aggressive patrols stopped all oil imports into the country. Uh, this quickly became a problem. You see, um, one of the Pakistani military and the ISI's 
things that they told the the government to to kind of get them to go along with the operation that already started. And I don't even know how the Pakistani prime minister would have stopped this if he wanted to, because it already happened. But um, they said, don't worry about it, because the the Pakistani economy was pretty much in shambles at the time. Um, they were going through pretty rough economic times. So fueling a war was simply not going to happen. And the military and the ISI were like, look, don't worry about it. We'll just use our current stores. You won't have to do anything else. It'll be fine. Well, the blockades in the Indian Navy operation meant that if India decided to really say, fuck this, we're going to invade them, they had only about six days of fuels to sustain itself in reserves. <laughs> <laughs> yes, yeah, so that guarantee that they will lose any war that they fight. Absolutely. Yeah. Um, Though India had pretty much every advantage, they still had to take back their strategic hills that the Pakistanis had taken. And it turns out that was going to be really fucking hard. The Pakistanis controlled every high point and used the terrain artillery down at the slowly advancing Indian troops. The Pakistanis also laid down something around like 10,000 landmines and the few approaches that the Indians could take. The Indians would have to retake these positions one by one. And I mean, this is the most modern mountain warfare I've ever heard of. Yeah. And it still resembles something out of like the Italian front of World War One for the most part. <laughs> yeah. I mean, honestly, like at that kind of altitude and that kind of terror, like terrain, like what good is technology? It turned it's really not a whole lot. I like they tried to. So like the Pakistanis had um, this American equipment that would help that they would put up and it would help them try to find where uh, like shots were coming from. That was like the most, uh, I think it's called like, I, I don't know. I had it in Afghanistan. It's fucking worthless, but um, like the computer <laughs> will tell you where the enemy is depending on where their gunshot came from. That is about the most advanced piece of technology I see being used uh, in this conflict. Other than that, it's almost all frontal assaults with artillery support. And it's not even big artillery support because they have to bring these fucking guns up mountains. So it's really small yeah. field pieces. Yeah. Like, I don't know, like 105 millimeter, like short howitzers. Or yeah. Something. And a lot of really small mortars. Um, so one of these battles was the battle of Tiger Hill, and it would be one of the most insane of the entire conflict. First of all, Tiger Hill was a, was not a hill. It was a thousand foot sheer cliff face covered in ice and snow. Um, Jeez. the Pakistanis were high up on the cliffs, raining machine gun fire and grenades down the Indian troops. And that is when one Yahara Singh Yadiv decided to take charge of the assault up a fucking cliff. Remember, this is not a hill. And he decided to do this by free climbing up a cliff face with an ice axe to attach ropes for the soldiers behind him, all while being shot at. Yadiv was <laughs> shot 14 fucking times and did not stop climbing. When he was done doing that, he saw his platoon got pinned down again and could not keep going up the ropes. So Yadiv climbed another 60 feet up another sheer cliff face. And so, like, he had already lost his rifle. I guess I should probably point that out. The only thing he had was a whole bunch of hand grenades and a knife and his ice axe, of course. So he climbed up a cliff and destroyed a Pakistani position using only a bayonet and hand grenades. Then he, (laughs) (laughs) then uh, when another bunker opened up on his platoon, he forced himself to get up probably higher than a motherfucker of blood loss at this point in like altitude sickness. Those two can't (laughs) combine to make like a a good, like mindset. Um, And then he charged the other machine gun position, ice axing four people to death in the process. (laughs) <laughs> he survived. <laughs> uh, he captured pretty much the entire objective by himself. He was eventually rewarded the Param Veer Chakra, which is the uh, the highest military medal in the Indian Army. Um, and there's actually a strange event happened on Tiger Hill that day. The Indian Army recommended another soldier to the, for the highest medal for uh, heroism on that day. And that was a Pakistani captain named uh, Colonel Shur Khan. <laughs> Uh, Interesting. So after they had taken uh, Tiger Hill, Khan had led a frontal counterattack personally. Like he led his whole platoon uh, from the front. They were all killed by a hail of machine gun bullets, mind you. But uh, apparently the Indian officer present was so uh, moved by his bravery that he wrote him an award citation and stapled it to his corpse. Damn. <laughs> <Pretty cool. laughs> uh, I have never heard of anybody doing that ever. Uh, uh, and uh, I feel like 
I feel like I've read a lot more stories about like these kinds of like insane acts of bravery and like old school like 19th century like warrior honor kind of nonsense from like India and Pakistan than anybody else. Yeah, India has the same so a total outsider point of view from doing research on this and and just reading a lot about military history. It seems like India's military culture is nearly um, unchanged from colonial times like it is very (laughs) very firmly situated in like the gentlemanly warfare aspect of things which is really weird but they literally uh wrote an award citation for dead enemy and stapled it to his corpse and he got it in 2010 khan was awarded the medal the nishan e Hyder, which is the highest award that pakistan has to offer based on an enemy's (laughs) citation (laughs) That's pretty cool. Yeah, that's honestly. fucking sweet. And uh, like his, br- I think it was his brother or his nephew got the medal uh, for him posthumously. And he said, mm-hmm. "Like, I'm very happy that our enemy are n- our enemies are not cowards because cowards would not do this <laughs> or something like that." I'm like, that's fucking badass. That's like so old school. Yeah. <laughs> like, I would like I would expect that to happen like during like the Battle of Waterloo or some shit. Yeah, exactly. Like nowadays, if like you know some like taliban soldiers did something really brave while fighting marines the marines would just like pee on their corpses <laughs> and then post racist memes imagine then, like, like imagine like really- a, a peer-on-peer war like when fucking russia invaded georgia like they just shot people in the face and threw them in a ditch <laughs> yeah it, it's really interesting like india and pakistan have this like really bad history with each other and yet, nonetheless, like when they're actually fighting a war, they uh, there seems I mean, obviously, there's still like atrocities and so on. But yeah, things yeah. like this do happen nonetheless, while in so many I feel like any war the United States has fought probably since like, I don't know, like the, the Civil War, like this sort of things. I haven't heard about this kind of stuff happening not like the enemy citations and stuff like there was yeah. um during world war ii that like that scene in uh was a band of brothers where they let a german general like say farewell to his soldiers uh that actually happened um stuff like that um yeah, i guess there was incidents of japanese commanders wanting to surrender and hand over their sword and like and uh the 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 the, the marine officer or army officer accepting the surrender, let him keep it stuff like that um but it's super few and far between not shit like this like even um recently when uh the guy with the bitchin mustache was shot down over pakistan like two weeks ago (laughs) um the kashmiris were uh pretty upset that he was bombing them so they're like beating Mm -hmm. the shit out of them and the pakistani soldiers showed up and like saved him which is Mm -hmm. shocking like i wouldn't expect i i I don't know why, but I would expect them to not do that because <laughs> they yeah, were just well, bombing like them. When, it's like when the that Russian uh, Su-27, I think, got shot down or Su-24 got shot down over Syria by the Turkish Air Force. I believe the pilots landed safely, but were then either one or both of them, I think, were basically like lynched by Turkish-backed rebels in Syria. Yeah, yeah they fought to the um, death for the most. Well, one of yeah. them fought to the death, and it was like on video. He got wounded, yeah. and he said something like, uh, I don't know, like this is how a Russian dies or something like that, and like pulled a hand grenade and ran at him, which is admittedly fucking badass. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Or like the Jordanian pilot who got captured by ISIS. Jesus fucking Christ. Yeah, that's horrible. That poor, yeah. poor man. Um, yeah. So, uh, much like Tiger Hill, um, many of the positions that had to be taken by Pac- or that were taken by Pakistani troops had to be retaken by the Indian troops uh, were out of clear air artillery strike range, meaning the only way to retake them would be through a direct frontal assault. One of those was the Battle of Tololing, uh, it was attack on a, another position on a cliff face is a full 18,000 feet above sea level and weather that would dip down below 18 degrees below zero. <laughs> um, the assault path was a barren moonscape uh, with no cover or concealment. This shit, like <laughs> it literally looks like, uh, uh, like it literally looks like the moon. There's nothing there. It's just a, a straight dead cliff face. There's nothing there. Uh, there's not even any ridges like you'd think a, a mountain would have boulders and ridges and shit this has nothing um 
So Indian military doctrine at the time actually called for any frontal assault to be carried out during the night, which, sure, that makes sense. Uh, but the idea had to quickly be abandoned when, when the commanders pointed out that their soldiers would probably freeze to death. <laughs> Uh, another trade-off would be what the soldiers had to carry. Um, now, this assault would take several days, and the Indians knew it would take several days. Um, but a person can only push themselves so hard for so long at such high elevation. Um, mm-hmm. And the human, the human body just doesn't work well under strain up there. So the soldiers had to leave all of their food and water behind so they could carry the ammunition they would take for the objective. <laughs> um, That's crazy. And well, the plan was, I mean, they're still going to burn through all their ammunition. They, they are soldiers after all. Um, so any resupply would have to be hand carried up the mountain after the initial assault. And because <laughs> this wasn't something that armies are built around anymore, they simply picked all of the, they, they made like a small army of porters out of army cooks, cobblers, and laundry workers, which I <laughs> honestly was more shocked that the Indian army still had cobblers than anything else. <laughs> Uh, they acted as a human supply chain all the way up the fucking uh, mountain to the front line according to a lieutenant named Parveen Tomar it took four people uh, four of the logistics support soldiers to support one soldier who was doing the fighting in the harsh environment that makes sense yeah and it's actually you know that sounds staggering uh, but it's kind of normal the way armies are built now but you can only imagine how much more support that one fighting soldier would need Uh, i think i i feel like i've heard that like in the u.s military like for every one combat soldier there's like 12 support soldiers that sounds about right to me yeah um and then like another 20 contractors (laughs) (laughs) but uh but to your point about how this this war um or at least some of these battles are like very much like a world war one or world war two kind of thing like I just I googled uh, pictures of the Battle of Tololing, and one of these, the pictures, it's Indian soldiers like setting up a position on this like horrible moonscape of a mountain with Bren guns. Yes. Right. <laughs> uh, so like, I mean, honestly, like I would probably rather have a Bren gun going up that mountain than like um, uh, like a M two forty or something because I'm sure it weighs less and you don't have to carry as much ammo. <laughs> <laughs> so, like they're probably better off with Bryn guns than like what would be like a more modern uh, light machine gun. Yeah, and I mean at least you know the Bren's gonna. I mean, I, I carried a two forty, and the two forties are incredibly reliable. But I never carried it fucking eighteen thousand feet up and <laughs> like in the snow. And I mean, it's like negative eighteen degrees. I don't know how it's gonna yeah. work up there. The Bren, eh, it's probably yeah. gonna be all right. <laughs> if it's nineteen ninety nine, like that Bren gun. It, you know it works like because it's been shooting for 60 years by that point. <laughs> yeah. um and you know it's it's incredible that uh they brought uh the indians brought artillery to this battle and the pakistanis really had none but um the the indian artillery commanders admitted they weren't really doing much because they had to fire up a mountainside and then hope it dropped down on the enemy behind it and it did not really work um yeah, that's tough yeah, this really does look like something out of, out of like the uh, like the Ottoman campaign and it, when they tried to invade <laughs> Russia. Like it yeah, fucking looks exactly. obscene. Uh, yeah. And because they had to wait until broad daylight, um, and you know this is, I feel like this is what the if somebody built a fucking fortress on on Everest and you had to like, assault Mount yeah. Everest, this is what it would look like. Um, yeah. And in broad daylight, the order was given to, quote, just go up there and bring them down by their necks. Um, so old school. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um, and now, Damn the torpedoes. <laughs> right. Full speed ahead. <laughs> Don't give up the ship. Uh, <laughs> the source I used the, uh, for this and for most of this article were really, really badly translated Indian news articles. And uh-huh. so... <laughs> I try to use other things, but it doesn't really seem like most Western countries care much about the Cargill War. And the I found one from like um, it was from some command staff college, uh, a, a paper that a uh, U.S. Army colonel wrote. And the only thing they cared about was uh, the mountain warfare, but like not the intricacies of how the fuck they actually pulled it off. But like just logistics <laughs> it was really boring to read and i got nothing out of it but um and uh-huh. also the really bad translations are fun 
uh, because yeah. they described the final assault on Pakistani positions as a quote berserker assault. <laughs> <laughs> and I cool. choose, fuck yeah, I, I choose to believe that means they stripped naked, did a bunch of drugs, and then literally ate the enemy. <laughs> I mean, honestly, like, how else are you going to assault a position that's at 18,000 feet? Like, I know if I was going, if I was tasked with assaulting a, a giant mountain with, like, nothing but the, like, you know, 100 rounds of AK-47 ammunition, like, I'd want to strip down, do math, and then just, like, run and hope that they get scared of the fact that I'm naked or like wearing nothing but boots and like a bandolier <laughs> and a fucking bitchin mustache yeah. if there's one thing i learned about the pakistani or that the indian high command over the last couple weeks is that i think <laughs> i think they're issued an outstanding must mustache their mustache game is oh, on yeah. point um, absolutely they might not have food or water on totaling but they have mustache <laughs> <laughs> and oh, i mean they did win so yeah, yeah, they did. And, and eventually Indian soldiers did take the hills, though it took a couple days. Um, I mean, lo- so losses in this war aren't too great because um, even though I'm talking about full frontal assaults and scaling ice fortresses, this is all mostly small team stuff. Like the Indians may have mobilized 200,000 soldiers, but they very rarely operated anything above a battalion because they knew it would be impossible to move them around in such horrible terrain. Which makes me really I think, uh, wonder how the fuck they pulled that off in previous wars. Yeah, I think they. Uh, I think I read somewhere that the Pakistanis only ever had like no more than a couple of like maybe four or five thousand troops um, involved at any one time. Anyway, so like yeah, just about. It's. Uh, I mean, and and I, I can imagine. I mean, just looking at some pictures of the of the terrain in this region, it's it's really really brutal terrain. So like. Whether or not you you sent like a hundred thousand soldiers or like ten thousand soldiers, like it's going to be incredibly difficult for them to move and stay supplied. Um, so you might as well just send ten thousand. Yeah, and they and it should be pointed out that the Pakistanis never actually thought they'd have to fight the Indians. Like that, yeah. that's probably the dumbest part of this whole thing is that they just like yeah, they probably <laughs> won't fight us. Um, yeah. Now, like I said, if you remember back to ISI's original plan for infiltration, none of this was supposed to happen. India was supposed to just roll over and accept that Pakistani troops are moving into the neighborhood. And more than that, they would, uh, if if they did want to fight back, they'd be afraid of losing soldiers and they would quickly just stop. Um, Faced with the fact that India had absolutely no intention on stopping, and not only were they okay with a little bit of blood, they would World War I-style charge straight up a fucking mountain if they had to, (laughs) Pakistan quickly began to look for an out. And their best option was a longtime ally of the United States and its current president, Bill Clinton. Um, Now, Clinton uh, did not want to get involved at all uh, because he knew it was Pakistan's fault. Um, he said that he would only get involved in moderating peace agreements once Pakistani troops withdrew completely back to their side of the LOC. He quickly changed his mind, however, when he was shown evidence that Pakistan is moving nuclear weapons closer to Kashmir. And yeah, uh, Pakistan was, uh, was pretty much accepting that not only were they going to lose that India wasn't going to say, fuck this and just keep fighting, which Mm -hmm. India never showed any intention on doing that. But I guess it pegs when you get your ass kicked that many times, you just start to assume you're going to get it kicked again. Um, by July 24th, 1999, uh, Pakistani uh, government agreed and pulled all of their troops back to the LOC. Um, on the international stage, because uh, remember, uh, one of their goals is bringing the Kashmir question, uh, so to say, in front of an international audience. Like, hey, guys, we need to get together the international community, wink, wink, and you just need to decide that Kashmir is, is Pakistan's. <laughs> um, like, they wanted to get people talking about it again. But it didn't really work because the conversation didn't really turn to, so what's the deal with Kashmir? It was like, what the fuck, Pakistan? <laughs> like, that's, that's the only thing anybody cared about and rightfully so pakistan was considered the bad guy um say what you will about the status of Kashmir, but they like definitely invade it um yeah and even post-war pakistan refused to admit that the regular soldiers were involved in the conflict at all um that was one of the reasons why it took khan the pakistani soldier who um 
who was oh, written given a citation by an Indian soldier all the way until 2010 to get his award because it, it wasn't until 2010 that Pakistan admitted that they did it. Um, uh, Pakistan also awarded 90 other people w- awards for gallantry during the fighting. Uh, that. There was also a, a website. It was like on the Pakistani military's website, they updated it with like m- martyrs as they were killed in Kashmir. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, if they weren't involved in fighting, why were they getting medals? Uh, if they weren't involved in fighting, why were you just randomly updating your website with dead people? Um, <laughs> uh, another thing that analysts like to point out that uh, this is only a um, a theater where really experienced soldiers could fight was the extreme environments uh these heights were not places where kashmiri militants would ambush indians at they would fight them in the streets like we just saw a couple weeks ago the suicide bombing um ieds like that uh, stuff like that they're not going to hike up twenty thousand feet and fight the indians this is not something that they did this is something that required specialized training and tons of expensive equipment so you know don't die or, or freeze to death these arguments all but shit can pakistan's attempt at plausible deniability um so uh, and i talked about it a little bit earlier but only two months after the cargill war Prime Minister Sharif would be forcibly removed from office by Pervez Musharraf, which brings us to our ultimate question here: What the fuck, ISI? Like, what was <laughs> what was the point? And you know, the if you if you take them uh, on the surface for what they say and, and just trust that they just thought that they didn't roll over, you have to either accept that the ISI is incredibly incompetent, or there's more to it. Um, because nobody believed that this was going to happen. And and even uh, Aziz, who was the ISI chief at the time, was like, yeah, this war is fucked. Uh, our bad. <laughs> but like almost so it, the the Pakistani high command was involved with the ISI in planning this, which how um, the prime minister ended up firing a lot of them. And he ended up firing Pervez Musharraf, which is why he launched his coup. So you have to accept that not only did the ISI plan this so Pervez Musharraf could get in power, but they also just figured that these particular people would be fired in order to him, in order for him to launch a coup, which is like, I don't know, to to steal a a saying from fucking QAnon, that's like 18D (laughs) fucking Chinese checkers level shit. And I don't know if I believe it. Like... Yeah, I believe that the ISI wanted to fuck with Sharif. Like, I do believe that. Otherwise, they would ask for permission. But I don't know if Pervez Musharraf was their ultimate goal. Um, I don't. I don't. I just don't know. Uh, and the ISI does so many things that retroactively fuck over Pakistan. That <laughs> I. It, it's not like you know. This, for instance, like we compare them to the CIA a lot. The CIA does a lot of fucked up shit, and they end up having a lot of tertiary blowback on their operations, like I don't know, creating the fucking Mujahideen in Afghanistan. All these death squads in Latin America drive hundreds of thousands of immigrants north. Shit like that. Um, but if you look at it at the time of when they did it, it at least makes sense. Like to further America's mm-hmm. goals, no matter how nefarious they are, you're like, okay, that makes sense. Nothing the ISI did here makes any fucking sense to me. <laughs> like, do you see anything here that makes sense? Yeah, it's pretty bizarre. I don't know, man. I mean, we're not intelligence it's... wonks, but like, I know somebody <laughs> like, well, if you if you look at, at the past of Kashmir and no, it's like, this is dumb. This is so yeah. dumb. <laughs> this whole war is like... When North Korea fucking built the largest flagpole and put the lar- the world's largest flag on it, so South Korea built like a sound system. Like nobody gives a shit. It means nothing. Yeah. <laughs> the, only, the only thing that happened is like a thousand people died. Yeah, I mean, honestly, I feel like that's most wars since like, oh Jesus, since like Vietnam. <laughs> well, even Vietnam, like, yeah, Vietnam itself, yeah. <laughs> yeah. It's like the the Iran Iraq war was eight years long. You know, probably a million people died, and nothing really changed at the end of it. No, uh, Saddam was in a lot 19, of debt. <laughs> yeah, like Saddam invades Kuwait in nineteen ninety one. Like tens of thousands of people die, and nothing's really changed at the end of it. Yeah. Um, 
I guess you could say like when Russia invaded Georgia in 2008, they like seized a tiny piece of territory that literally nobody else in the entire world gives a shit about except like the eight people in Georgia and like the three people who live in that piece of territory. Uh uh <laughs> yeah I, I don't know man like i i have a theory and it's it's bad but it's as bad as a theory as the rest of the isi and that is the greater <laughs> isi boonk gang theory have you ever heard of boonk boonk gang he's a fucking terrible stand-up comedian not really a stand-up comedian he just like stunts on instagram yeah, all, all he does so he's like this um he looks a lot like uh fucking he looks like a, a soundcloud rapper he has tattoos all over his face and has a grill and shit and he goes into places and just steals shit on camera and he live streams it and he'll, he'll just yell gang shit gang shit boom gang <laughs> just for laughs and i <laughs> like it's completely self-destructive of himself because he gets arrested all the time he got shot once uh-huh. like Jesus. i feel like isi is doing it for the for, <laughs> for the gang shit it doesn't make it no, this, this doesn't make sense, but I, I'm, I'm calling it. ISI is the original boot gang, and he's just stealing. They, they did. They should have waited until now to do it, because like there was no clout in 1999. But like, <laughs> uh, if they had done it now, they could have like live streamed that shit and gotten like so much clout, dude. Yeah, I mean, the hashtag would have been trending. <laughs> <laughs> uh, so. For better or for worse, that's the Cargill War, and it is apparently yeah. created by SoundCloud rappers, and that is now historical fact. Uh. <laughs> <laughs> Actually, uh, Takeshi Six Nine is the uh, is uh, is Musharraf. Um, that's the uh... so him getting arrested for racketeering is like Musharraf being <laughs> ousted from power, <laughs> something like that. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> In this in this world that we created, war would be a whole lot more colorful. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> Travis, yeah. thank you as always for coming on and once again fighting through losing power. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, well, I mean, as uh, as we said when the power came back on, I'm excited for when Kurdistan reclaims uh, Kashmir um, <laughs> because then Kurdistan can have access to all the hydroelectric power plants in the Kashmir region, so that. Um, when they lay the giant ring of uh, or line of uh, extension cables from Kashmir across Pakistan, Afghanistan, Iran, all the way here to Erbil, I can have electricity 24 hours a day. I feel like that power line would look a whole lot when, like, I had. A, I, I'm a little bit older than you, but uh, I remember back then we had like LAN parties, and you just had this fucking daisy oh, yeah. chain of <laughs> extension cords yeah. going across the house. But it, but yeah. it's like over the course of fucking six countries. Uh, uh, I feel like that's a fun game that all of our listeners can play is try to pick out when Travis lost power. (laughs) (laughs) Well, cause it it has happened in every single episode, every episode. Yeah. Most of them, I think at the end. So I think the last episode I did, I remember listening to it and you can kind of tell when I lose power because it's like, I'm just kind of gone (laughs) and, uh, and you like end the episode. Yeah. Quickly (laughs) wrap it up. And the one before that, it's like the audio changes like in the middle of a sentence because you like cut the recording and start it over again. <laughs> <laughs> oh, poor Nate. Uh, <laughs> uh, I'm sorry, Nate. <laughs> uh, thanks again for stopping by. You can follow us on the Twitter at lines underscore by. You can follow Travis at Haycraft underscore Travis. And you can follow me for all your shit posting needs at JCast99. Um, if you want to listen to our I'm not even sure how many bonus episodes we did now, but our wonderful Far Cry is Maoism episode. One dollar to the Patreon gets you access to that. Uh, so until next week, we will see you guys later. Hi, this is Nate Bethay, and I'm the producer of the Lions Led by Donkeys podcast. This show is brought to you by Audible. And as it just so happens, Audible is offering our listeners a free audiobook with a 30-day trial membership. Just go to audibletrial.com forward slash donkeys and browse the selection of audio programs. Download a title for free and start listening. Once again, that's www.audibletrial.com forward slash donkeys to get started.